Welcome to the Journey Church Houston podcast. The Journey is a church plant in Houston, Texas, inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Whether you are a skeptic, a spiritual seeker, or a committed follower of Jesus Christ, we pray this podcast engages your heart and your mind with the truth claims of Christianity, why it is believable, and how it makes sense of our lives and the world. And we hope you are inspired to take your next step in your spiritual journey. In this episode, I, Mace, begin a new lesson series on the journey's core values. These are the beliefs we hold most dear because they are essential Christian beliefs. We start by discussing the most important and fundamental beliefs about God himself, the main character of the Christian story, the one who is truth, goodness, and beauty. Because the more we know him, the more we will delight in him. And the more we delight in him, the more we will become like him. And the more excited and equipped we will be to invite others to know him. So, let's take a listen as I teach on the journey's core convictions about God. What is a non-overtly theological belief that you will vehemently defend? So an example might be, the current Astros run is one of the greatest dynasties in MLB history. So maybe that's a, that is a belief that you will vehemently defend. What about you guys? What comes to mind? So you're on the we should be daylight savings time year round or standard time year round side. Well, I don't think the extra hour matters standard time year round. Okay. Which that's Arizona, I think, right? Is Arizona standard time year round? No, we're daylight savings time now. So what we were the last however many months was standard time. Yeah. Yeah. He does. Yeah. <laughs> Very opinionated, for yes, sure. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, that the Springboks are the, you know, the best rugby team in the world, right? N- non-disputable at this point. I would say, good for that. I think one of the hardest roads to the final is they play. I looked at the rankings. Uh huh. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so, I think that's, yeah, that would probably be the thing on my mind. Yes, absolutely. Y'all earned it, for sure. Okay, bring it. Okay. So, so, 
no PSL for you. Okay. You know, I, I, I could go with you there. I, I, I don't mind a little pumpkin spice, but when they start putting in everything, it, yeah. It's a bit right, much. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go get this one now. Okay. okay. All right. I agree to disagree. Y'all, y'all can talk about that <laughs> over dinner. Okay, one more. Let's. Everybody will agree with, at least for me. Okay, I'm excited to hear. Ooh, okay. I have to just say, Astro World should have stayed. That was my favorite place to go to ride roller coasters when I was younger. I was in a. I'm gonna I'm gonna charitably interpret this that this person that was talking to me just assumes that I have such a youthful look about me. But I was in a conversation with someone the other day that was, they go, you know, Houston used to have this place called Astroworld. I'm like, yeah, we did. Like, the glory of my childhood. Come on. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, the reason why we, we bring that up is that we all have certain beliefs that we hold most dear. And a few weeks ago, as we were talking about our core values, the second core value that we talked about is being thoughtful that we want to be a thoughtful church, meaning we want to be a church where our members know what we believe, why we believe it, and how it makes sense of the world around us. And so to that end, we're starting a new series of lessons tonight um, on the journey's core convictions. Uh, core convictions. Um, these are the theological beliefs that we as a church plant hold most dear. These are the beliefs that we believe are essential to Christianity. And so we want to back up and just briefly review what we talked about a couple of weeks ago about what theology is. And you might remember we talked about how the word theology is made up of two Greek words, theos and logos. Theos, which is God, and logos, which is word or thought. And so we said theology basically is thoughts about God. And we said that that means that everyone is a, a theologian. And so the we don't want to just be a theologian. We want to be good theologians because everyone has thoughts about God. Christians have thoughts about God. Muslims have thoughts about God. Even the atheist has thoughts about God. So we want to make sure that our thoughts are true thoughts. We want to be good theologians. And the good news is that we can be because God has revealed himself through his world and through his word. And so we want to talk a little bit tonight about how we do theology. Um, how do we do theology? The fancy term for this is theological method. And there's a lot that can be talked about theological method. I talked last week how I spent an entire semester in seminary working on theological method and doctrine of, of scripture. But we, we just want to cover a few of the basics tonight. And I would say the most important thing when we're thinking about theological method is that we want to start with the scriptures. And that's because of what we said several weeks ago when we talked about our biblical value about what the Bible is. We said the Bible, made up of the 66 canonical books of the Old and New Testaments, is God's revelation to humanity. The scriptures reveal the Christian story, the true, good, and beautiful story of the Creator and His creation, centered on the person and work of Christ and His first and second comings. They're inspired by God, the very words of God mediated through human authors. They are inerrant, without error in their original manuscripts. They are authoritative to be trusted and obeyed. And they are sufficient, containing all we need to know for salvation and faithful 
living. In other words, all we need for the journey. And so our observations of the world, our experiences in the world, the various theological traditions that we come from all have to be subservient to the scriptures. That we have to interpret our observations, we have to interpret our experiences, and we need to evaluate our various Christian traditions according to scripture, not the other way around. And so if I was to give a really high flyover of theological method, it might go something like this. To do theology, we start with the scriptures. Then we seek to understand that verse or that passage that we're looking at in its original context. Then we incorporate all of the relevant biblical data throughout the scripture. So we look at what Genesis to Revelation has to say about that particular topic. Then we take our initial analysis, our original thoughts, and we compare it to what other Christians have thought and said throughout the years. So that's where things like creeds and commentaries can be helpful. Then we summarize and we synthesize what the scriptures teach about that topic. Um, you might hear the, the concept or the, the discipline of systematic theology. That's what we're talking about, summarizing and synthesizing what scripture has to say about a topic. And then finally, Last but not least, we seek to live in line with these beliefs. So that's a very high-level overview of theological method. Another concept that we need to talk about before getting into our core convictions themselves is the idea of theological triage. The word triage, I uh, just found this out as I was preparing for this lesson, comes from a French word, which means to sort. And so to triage is to sort into varying levels of theology. So, for example, not a theological example, but uh, another where we probably are most familiar with this idea of triage from the medical world. So several months ago, when baby Jude was still in Jennifer's tummy, Jennifer was experiencing some uh, symptoms that she thought were kind of weird. So we said, okay, let's go to the hospital. Let's just make sure we, we get this checked out. So we go and we immediately go to... Um, the triage area. And so the very first person that Jennifer sees and talks to is the triage nurse. And that triage nurse is there to evaluate the cases that are walking into the hospital and figure out what level of urgency there is. Like, is this baby about to pop out uh, right now? Or is there something extremely, seemingly extremely wrong that we need to get you right away? Or is this something that we think you probably have a little bit of time and we'll wait for the next available room to open up? So that's triage. When we're talking about the Bible and theology, theological triage refers to giving varying levels of weight to different doctrines. Um, so one way that we like to talk about it, if you look at our doctrinal statement, the preface says this, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. However, the Apostle Paul said that there are certain doctrines of first importance. And so we attempt to reflect this in our statement of faith by distinguishing between our core convictions and our doctrinal distinctives. Our core convictions are the doctrines that St. Vincent of Lorraine, how do, how do I say that? My, I, was, I was trying to practice with Jennifer earlier. St. Vinny. He said, uh, he said that what well, we would call our core convictions, he said they are the things that have been believed everywhere, always, and by all. 
And these doctrines comprise what Jude, uh, whom our baby Jude is named after, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And so to waver from these doctrines is to waver from the true Christian faith. And at the journey, what that will look like practically is that members will be required to affirm, uphold, and promote these core convictions. Now, when we call these beliefs that we're going to be discussing over these next several sessions our core convictions, or when we say that they are essential to Christianity, we are not saying that one has to uh, believe every single word of these doctrines in order to be saved, but we're just trying to say that these are beliefs that define what Christianity is and that they form the core of Christian theology and that to depart from or deny any points within our core convictions is to fundamentally depart and deny an essential aspect of Christian theology. So that's what theological triage is. How do we do it? How do we come up with what would be our core convictions versus our doctrinal distinctives? Uh, to this end, Gavin Ortland uh, offers four helpful questions. One, how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? Two, how is this, or what is this doctrine's importance to the gospel? Three, what is the testimony of the historic church concerning this doctrine? And four, what is this doctrine's effect on the church today? So, how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? There are some teachings that are just absolutely clear and explicit in Scripture. So, for example, Ephesians 2, 8-9 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's an exciting night. We're talking about core convictions. So it is one of our core convictions that we don't earn our salvation by our works. It is a gift of God, which naturally leads to the next question, which is, what is this doctrine's importance to the gospel? So here's a passage we looked at uh, a few weeks ago. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, says, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed down to you as of first importance, so here's Paul doing theological triage, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so when we're thinking about where do we put a certain doctrine in um, this theological triage, what is this doctrine's importance to the gospel? So Paul seems to say that things like the life, death, and resurrection of Christ are essential to the gospel. Therefore, they are part of our core convictions as it relates to Christian theology. The third question that Ortland suggests is, what is the testimony of the historic church concerning this doctrine? So here again, we're talking about the things that have been believed everywhere, always, and by all. And so again, this is where things like the historic creeds are, are helpful. We have things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that were formed in the very earliest days of the church 
that articulate the core of Christian theology and help us know what the historic teaching on things like who God is, the doctrine of Christ, uh, what the church is, what what will happen in the, the end times. There are certain core elements of each of those doctrines that have been handed down to us and that Christians have been unwavering on for 2,000 years. But um, where a lot of people get a little off, in my opinion, is that they limit core convictions to the things that are found in the historic creeds. So while the historic creeds are essential and they're one tool that we can use to see what the church has taught, something doesn't have to be explicitly in one of these ancient creeds to be um, the historic teaching of the church. We, we can still find consistent teaching as we look at sermons and other theological works throughout church history. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we talk about our last question, which is what is the doctrine's effect upon the church today? So um, some of the issues in our day is that we, you will find Christians, you will find um, pastors, you will find churches that will claim to be orthodox because they say, look, we affirm the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. But then on this issue over here, this contemporary cultural issue, they say, but we believe this that is radically different from what the church has taught for 2,000 years, even if it's not something that's found in one of the historic creeds. And the problem is almost always in those scenarios, the thing that they are promoting, the thing that they are going against the historic Christian teaching for 2,000 years almost always has to deal with some area of sin. And they are allowing or promoting or encouraging um, sin, which would mean that they are allowing and promoting and encouraging lifestyle choices that are ultimately destructive to people. So while not claiming to be perfect, our attempt to distinguish uh, our theological positions between core convictions and doctrinal distinctives is an attempt to do theological triage. And we, our core convictions are those things that we believe are essential to Christian theology. So that's why we as a church will require all members to affirm, uphold, and promote these core convictions. So that's how we came up with what our core convictions are, but what are they exactly? And so we've actually already discussed one in a previous lesson, and we mentioned it earlier this evening, and that's our doctrine on the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. And now we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening talking about our theology proper. And then the next several weeks, we'll cover the other areas of our core convictions. So what is our theology proper? I say theology proper because theology can be used in a broad sense or in a narrow sense. So um, the broad sense is how we often think of what we often think of when we use the word theology. It's, it's everything we believe about everything. It includes what we believe about humanity, about salvation, about the, where the Christian story is heading. But theology proper is what we believe about God himself. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says that Christianity is not primarily about lifestyle change. It's about knowing God. So sometimes there's this objection to doing theology because people don't want it to become this cold, lifeless experience. And I don't blame them. But if we are going to have a relationship with God, especially a growing, life-giving relationship with Him, we have to know Him, and we have to know Him rightly. So to grow in my relationship with my wife, Jennifer, I go on dates with her. 
and I constantly want to know her at a deeper level. What's her story? What's on her heart and mind right now? What makes her feel most loved by me? And likewise, we want to know who God is and what he's like as he's revealed in his world and his word. And so here is the, doc, uh, the journey's doctrinal statement on God or theology proper. The Christian story is most fundamentally the story of God. This story reveals that there is one true God, creator of all, who eternally exists as one divine essence in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and the Lord Jesus Christ, truly divine and truly human. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, brings people to saving faith in Christ, and indwells, transforms, and equips believers for service in the body of Christ. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our time breaking this down. So the journey exists to invite people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. And God is the main character of this story. The story begins in the beginning, God. So the Christian story is most fundamentally the story of God. And the first thing that this God does in this story is create the heavens and the earth, which is just a, a Hebrew way of saying he created everything. So everything in our universe exists because God created. He is the one true God creator of all. So this story reveals that there is one true God creator of all who eternally exists as one divine essence. There is one and only one eternal creator God. He is holy, which means set apart. He's one of a kind. There's nothing like him in all creation because he alone is creator. He alone existed before creation. We've looked at this scripture before, but um, this was one of the first and most basic faith statements of the Jewish people. Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And this belief in one true God made the Israelites and their faith radically different from the polyistic cultures that surrounded them. And it's what makes, or part of what makes Christians today radically different from other faith traditions and worldviews in our day. So many people in our day don't believe in any God. Others believe in millions upon millions of God. Others believe that God is everything or God is in everything. And then still others believe in some sort of cosmic force, something like the universe. But the Christian faith, the Christian story, the true, good, and beautiful story says that there is one and only one true God who exists, who created everything, and who alone is worthy of our worship and devotion. However, I said it's one of the things that makes us distinctive, um, but there are other monotheistic religions, right? Like Islam or Judaism. So one of the major areas where we would fundamentally different from our Jewish and Muslim friends is the next phrase in our theological statement. The one true God eternally exists as one divine essence in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this three-in-one nature of God is summarized by the term Trinity. It's to say God is triune. An early church father who helpfully articulated and strongly defended the doctrine of the Trinity was a man by the name of Athanasius. And the opening line of the Athanasian Creed, which was 
not written by him, but was named in his honor, says that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing the essence. So scripture clearly teaches the, the oneness of God. We just looked at the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord is one. But where do we get the idea of the threeness of God? Well, going back to our discussion of theological method, um, the word Trinity is never in the Bible, but we do believe that it is an accurate summary of all of the biblical data regarding the nature and personhood of God. Perhaps one of the, the clearest texts, if you were just looking for one passage, is another passage we've looked at before, the Great Commission. Jesus, after his resurrection, commanded his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we know from early church history, documents like the Didache, which was the earliest non-biblical Christian document, that the early church took this Trinitarian baptismal formula seriously and literally. Now, when we say formula, we don't mean it was just some rote set of words or some sort of magic incantation, but as early church scholar and Dallas Theological Seminary professor Michael Spiegel, Michael Spiegel says, um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit language was not a formula to be recited, but a summary of the faith to be confessed. In other words, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit means at least in part that the one being baptized is publicly professing their faith in the triune God the one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The ESV Study Bible provides a helpful summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. The biblical teaching on the Trinity embodies four essential affirmations. Number one, there is one and only one true and living God. Number two, this God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three, these three persons are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature. And four, while each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not identical. Or here is a helpful graphic uh, that helps visually summarize the doctrine of the Trinity. So God, uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And I know as we say all this, uh, the Trinity is mind-blowing, but rather than being something that should be scary or um, something that we just turn away from, I think the Trinity should be something that should inspire awe of our God that we worship. We should expect God to be something that is our limited human minds cannot fully comprehend. But even though it is mind-blowing, it is um, a fundamental Christian doctrine, not only a fundamental Christian doctrine, it is arguably the most fundamentally distinctive Christian doctrine, which is one of the reasons why it's one of our core convictions. Reeves writes, every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the triune God. I could believe in the death of a man called Jesus. I could believe in his bodily resurrection. I could even believe in a salvation by grace alone, 
But if I do not believe in this God, then quite simply, I am not a Christian. And so, because the Christian God is triune, the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief, the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. And then later he writes, even the most basic call to believe in the Son of God is an invitation to a Trinitarian faith. Jesus is described as the Son of God. God is his Father. And he is the Christ, which means anointed one. He's the one anointed with the Spirit, the Trinity, one God in three persons. Now let's briefly talk about each member of the Trinity. So first, the Father. The Nicene Creed says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. So while all three members of the Trinity were involved in creation, there is something to be said about how and why God revealed the first member of the Trinity as the Father. And that is, to be a father is by nature to be a life giver. Now, the Father didn't create and give life because he had to. He did it because he wanted to, because he delighted to, because he is a father who is eternally delighted in his son. Reeves writes, since God the Father has eternally loved his Son, it is entirely characteristic of him to turn and create others that he might also love them. Creation is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. So, next time you look up at the sun, moon, and stars and wonder, remember, they are there because God loves, because the Father's love for the Son burst out that it might be enjoyed by many. And they remain there only because God does not stop loving. So there's God the Father, and then there's God the Son. Our doctrinal statement says, The Son was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary in the Lord Jesus Christ, truly divine and truly human. And the Nicene Creed says, And I believe in, the, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. And he was crucified for, uh, for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And again, summaries like this take into account um, all of scripture to form our doctrine of the Son of God. But if, if I had to point to just one passage as a starting point, as we're trying to form our theology, our beliefs around the second member of the Trinity, I would look at the opening of the Gospel of John. So the Apostle John opens his Gospel account with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. And so as we look at this, these short verses, in the beginning, 
Those words should immediately draw our mind to the beginning of the story, the Genesis creation account. Genesis 1.1 said, in the beginning, God. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word. This Word, as John calls him, is eternal. He existed before the beginning. And as we continue on in the opening of John's Gospel, it says that the Word was with God, showing that the Word and God the Father are distinct somehow, but also the Word was God that he was and is and always has been divine. And he created all things. Absolutely nothing was created that was not created by him. So the word is the creator, which, as we've seen, is a quality of God himself. And then a little bit later in the opening of John's gospel, verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh, in other words, human, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The divine word became human. And it's clear as you read through the opening of John's gospel that the word that he's referring to is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, was, is, and has always been divine. And then in an event known as the incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, became, is, and always will be human. Truly God, truly human. Once again, the ESV Study Bible offers a helpful summary. Four statements must be understood and affirmed in order to attain a complete biblical picture of the person of Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine. Number two, Jesus Christ is fully and completely human. Number three, The divine and human natures of Christ are distinct. And four, the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in one person. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Our doctrinal statement says, The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, brings people to saving faith in Christ, and indwells, transforms, and equips believers for service in the body of Christ. And the Nicene Creed says, And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. In one sense, it's a shame that the, the Holy Spirit probably gets talked about the least among the three members of the Trinity. Um, and there's probably the most confusion about the Holy Spirit out of all the members of the Trinity. But in another sense, that is somewhat by design. The Holy Spirit has been called the shy member of the Trinity. And that's because while he is God and he's worthy of our worship, his main role within the Trinity is to testify to the Son of God and glorify the Father. He is essential to the Christian life, as we see in our doctrinal statement. He enables one to understand and believe the gospel, and he enables our spiritual growth. And again, there's so much we could say, uh, but I want to make sure we we clear up what is probably the most common and most significant confusion regarding the the Holy Spirit. Um, If someone was asking what the most dangerous and pervasive element of confusion is around the Son of God, Jesus, I'd probably say it's the belief that he was created and not eternal. 
But if we're looking at the Holy Spirit, I would say probably the most pervasive element of confusion regarding the Holy Spirit is that he isn't it, that he's some sort of invisible force and not a person. So I'll just point out one interesting passage of scripture that I think will help us here. In Acts chapter 5, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira lie about giving all the proceeds that they made on a sale of property uh, to the church. And when the apostle Peter confronts them about it, he says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later he continues and he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is not an it, he's a person. An it cannot be lied to, only a person can. And he's not just any person. Peter says that when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God. So when we look at all of the biblical data, we see that there is one God in three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Trinity. If a fundamental element of the Christian faith is knowing and delighting in God, then that means that knowing and delighting in the Trinity is fundamental to the Christian faith. God is wholly other. We will never fully comprehend him, but he has revealed himself and what he is like. And the more we know him, the more delighted we will be in him. And the more delighted we are in him, the more we become like him. So if all of this is mind-blowing to you, which it is to me, <laughs> um, I would highly encourage you to, to pick up a copy and read through Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Um, in fact, maybe there's someone in this group that you might want to read it together along, or maybe one of your top five is someone who's a spiritual seeker and is trying to sort out what it is that Christians believe. This would be a great book to read along with them as well, because everybody is a theologian. And so we want to be good theologians. And that means growing in our knowledge of Christian theology, including and perhaps especially our theology proper. Who is God and what is he like? So let's seek to grow in our knowledge of God and through our knowledge of God to know God personally and through knowing him to delight in him and through delighting in him to become more like him. And as we do, we'll be better equipped to invite others on the journey of discovering the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story especially the truth, goodness, and beauty of the main character of the story, the God who made us, the God who loves us. So let's know him, delight in him, become like him, and invite others to know him. And let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you for these all-too-brief moments that we have had this evening to discover more of who you are, to know more of the God who made us, who loves us, who sent his son to die on the cross for us, who gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can understand and believe the gospel and who equips us to grow in our faith and to help others, Lord. The most important thing we can do in the Christian life, Lord, is know you more. So that's our heart's desire. So we pray that 
what we've talked about in these brief moments tonight helps us to that end. And we also pray, Lord, that as we go about from here, Lord, that as we continue reading your scriptures and as we, we pick up good Christian books like Delighting in the Trinity and maybe even read it with others, whether it's someone in this group or someone in our top five, Lord, as we go out from here, that you would continue to help us know you more. And as we know you more, to delight in you more. And as we delight in you more, to become more like you, Lord. And as we do, as we delight in you and become more like you, Lord, that we would inspire others to know you as well. And we ask all these things in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Journey Church Houston podcast. For more resources and to connect with us, including to learn how you can be a part of the journey, visit thejourneyhouston.org.